Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now This is actor Peter Cushing. The movie you watched last week featured me, actor Peter Cushing, in a very small role as Osric Foppish Courtier. And I wish for all of you to know that I, Peter Cushing, am an actor, and that the Foppish Osric is not my personal approach to life, and liberty, and justice. I wear mostly minimalist clothing of a very conservative cut. The sort of clothing that you could see in a bank or a restaurant or perhaps even a haberdasher. I do not wear a thin mustache, although occasionally I do in fact wear a mustache. I prefer to wear a mustache that's quite thick and luscious and prominent. This has been a message to my fans who would think otherwise of me in my sartorial choices and would expect these fans to know that in the future, should they see me in the street, or the bingo halls, or the bathhouses. And I am not a flamboyant man. I am a serious, serious man. This has been actor Peter Cushing. Please enjoy the following podcast called For Screen Man Country. Thank you. He's a very heavy walker. Yeah, and he just left. He didn't say anything. He literally walked in, silent, sat down, said his piece, and walked out. I was uh, I was captivated the entire time with that. That was, that was quite the speech there. It was like he planned it, which I don't know that he did. <laughs> I don't know. It sounded very uh, it sounded very written down ahead of time, which mm. it may not have been. I don't know. You know. The world's a weird place. Lots of things can happen. Well, Jason, uh, after uh, Peter Cushing said his piece, so we should uh, say that this is a podcast. It is. It's a podcast. It's an audio document of our ramblings about British films, specifically those British films that were determined by the British Film Institute in the year of our Lord, 1999. To be the top 100 British films of all British time. That is correct. And we are just about to round out the... 
40 the first 40 yeah we are at movie number 40 not movie number 43 which as you know has hugh jackman with a penis for a nose why wouldn't it why wouldn't it (laughs) that movie uh, otherwise uh its other title of course being uh hollywood blackmail (laughs) yeah pretty much i don't know how all those people got i saw the one scene with chloe grace grace moretz and the period blood and i was like really this is a movie (laughs) it sure is yep it even says so right in the title. Movie. The 43rd movie yep. ever made. They <laughs> <laughs> haven't made that many movies. Um, Jason, it's a podcast. We, we talk about this podcast. I'm Brendan. I'm Jason. Yeah. And we are going to talk about a very special film this week. Mm. But before we get into this week's movie, we should, uh, we, should talk, we should read some comments from last week's film. A film we both struggled with a little bit. 1948's Hamlet. Oh, some line from Hamlet would be great if I was seeing it right now. Comments from listeners. Woo! Listeners like you. All of you. And you. And yeah, and especially you. Ba-doop, ba-doop, boop, boop. So to our three listeners, it's time for your comments. <laughs> yeah. Weird that they, they must have made multiple Facebook accounts. Yeah, well, that's, that's the kind of people our listeners are. They like to have a lot of different irons in the fire, identity-wise. You crazy kids. <laughs> Jason... We talked about uh, Hamlet last week. We did. Let's read some comments about it. I'm going to let you tackle that first one because I want to hear your attempt at the pronunciation of the name. All right. I believe, and I believe we've we've dealt with this name before, and I would say uh, um, Alan L. Allen. I, I fucked up on the Allen part. That's the that's the most messed Alan, up thing. Alan Allen. Alan Allen, which is a great name. Alan says, filmed a lot differently to Henry V, obviously, back to black and white, but also a lot more claustrophobic and atmospheric. I would keep both as pivotal Shakespearean interpretations on film, although I have not watched Brenna's version. Gene Simmons was particularly captivating as Ophelia. Thank you, Alan. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, they're both... I still think I'm sticking with the idea of keeping... a. Uh, uh, agreeing with your take of keeping Olivier's maybe Henry V mm. and then maybe putting on Branagh's I'm Hamlet. Branagh all the way, baby. Even though I've never seen it. You I'm should. just taking your word for it. Uh, you should, you should watch that tonight. <laughs> okay. Or get up early and watch it before work. Um, I would have to get up at 4 a.m. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Might as well just not go to bed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Sharon, Sharon Horwitt. Another uh, of our rogues gallery of commenters. A regular. What are you drinking, Sharon? Just kidding. I already know because you're a regular. She says, no surprise. Hamlet is my favorite Shakespeare play. I do think there are good things in this version, like with with Olivier's Henry V, but I am kind of sad that he cut Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Mm. entirely. That's why I prefer David Tennant's version and a good representation of the play and Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet as a complete version of the play. Yeah, it, without those two guys in there, there was really no comic relief at all. It was all very dour. I laughed. Well, yeah, but you you laughed at the Wicker Man when the guy was burning at the end. You just cackled. <laughs> Stop, you killing me. <laughs> Don't you dare mention Passion of the Christ. No, no, we won't even talk about that. <laughs> he, was, he died for our sins. He did. Uh, let's see, what else we got here? We got uh, Nathan Rubble. Uh, you just nope. No, I did. I, well, I will come back to you, Nathan. Hold on. Hold your horses, Nathan. We got <laughs> just Chelsea Gibbs. I skipped over poor Chelsea. 
Chelsea says, I recently saw this for the first time and was blown away by Olivier's ability to make Shakespeare so accessible. Like, this dialogue came so naturally to everyone in the cast, which made it feel natural to hear and understand. And I love the atmosphere. And I think I mentioned in the episode, yeah, these people clearly understand what they're saying, and that really does come through. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, having watched many a high school production of Shakespeare uh, in my years in school, I know that, you know, if you don't understand what you're saying, it doesn't sound right. It would just sound monotone. Yeah. It'd be like if you didn't understand any script you were reading. It's like you're reciting a poem, like poetry. For class, yeah, no one understands poems. No. Poems were written a hundred years ago. Poems are intended for pain. That mark our place and in the sky, the lark still bravely singing, fly scarce heard amidst the guns below. The truth is out there. Uh, Nathan, all Ro- right, Nathan, it's time for you now. <laughs> Nathan Robble, he's patiently waited in line. He said, "While I have nothing but respect and admiration for Olivier's Hamlet and Henry V, I have to say I find Branagh's version of both considerably more engaging and rewatchable." I like this guy. Of course, they're all products of their time, and it's a matter of taste. But for me, it took a few sittings to get through Olivier's Hamlet, and yet Branagh's, for how long it is, always has me captivated for its entire four hours. I'd say the same for Henry V. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just. Both Henry V and Branagh's Hamlet are like visual feasts to watch, and they keep your eyes busy and your mind tingling the whole time. I think you might have be having a stroke. I'll look into it and I'll get back to you. <laughs> All right. All right. Hey. <laughs> okay. So just this isn't this won't matter because nobody can see any of yeah. this. But I glanced over at this next comment and I said I thought it begun with if you ask the Chinese, <laughs> if you ask me, the Chinese midnight party. <laughs> I don't know. If you ask me. Chimes at Midnight is one of the best Shakespeare movies. It was a Spanish-Swiss production, though, so it wouldn't be included on this or the AFI list. I've heard the name, uh, and I only know the, 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 well, the line specifically from Shakespeare, but also from Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. If you'll remember, Brendan, General Chang, at some point when he's taunting Kirk over the comms, says, Have we not heard the chimes at Midnight, Captain? Yeah, I, I definitely remember what you just said. The best. So good. Um, Adam Pellman! Another one of our rogues gallery of commenters, Adam. Oh man, we were just talking about Adam before the podcast started. Uh, Brendan noticed that he'd like to post, so thanks, Adam, for liking stuff. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Uh, he says, "I think this his version of Hamlet is great, but his Henry V and his Richard III have a different energy to them and showcase such vibrant use of color that they have always been more engaging to watch for me." Hmm. I'm interested to see his Richard III. Yeah, I like. I want to see that Richard the Third that Ian McKellen's in. That is, um, that is true about Henry the Fifth, though. I mean, it does that that production does feel a lot more alive. Oh, absolutely, it is. and it's not just the color; it's like it's just the the liveliness of everything. And I mean, maybe that's a function of the play of Hamlet being, you know, this hardcore tragedy. Mm. Tragedy. Um, it's also just very unique in the way it's presented. Yeah. What do you got? Jim Williams. Big Jim Williams says, I love this version. He certainly edited a ton of the play, though if you want to, if you want the entire thing, you'll have to look elsewhere. I don't care for his Henry V. I like Branagh's Henry V much better. I can see why. It's a, if, you, if you like this movie, you probably would like Branagh's Henry V more. Uh, he likes it much better and he prefers Ian McKellen's Richard III to Olivier's. I mean, Ian McKellen in that movie is dressed like a Nazi, so he's very stylish. And are you sure this week he's not saying Don McKellar? I'm pretty sure he's saying I'd say Dominic. Okay. His Othello is painful to watch. Mm, yeah. Does he play Othello? Olivier sure did. Oh, my God. And mm. it's exactly what you think. Yeah. Orson, and, and as a white man who's also played Othello, I sympathize, but Jesus, get over yourself. You did not wear blackface, Jason? Uh, no, I did not, I swear. 
Uh, it was just an ethnically inaccurate portrayal of. Uh, yeah, it's like when it's like when Emma Stone played that uh, one eighth Chinese girl in Aloha. Yeah, we just said it. We didn't. We didn't. You didn't put put her in slaty eye makeup or anything. You just. Uh, you know, she wasn't like a doctor. No, absolutely not. And they would do that too. They would just do the most terrible stereotypical. They would just oh, it'd be like they they do to her eyes what they did to Spock's ears. And it, and yeah, no, you can't let these people loose. Back to the comment. Jim continues. Uh, Orson Welles is better as Othello, I guess, but I am still waiting for a great version of that one. Lawrence Fishburne was disappointing. That's a shame. He seems like he'd be really good at that. He's a great actor. And I still want to see a good Merchant of Venice. Well, didn't Al Pacino play the Merchant of Venice? Uh Uh-huh. I've seen two, but they didn't get there either. (laughs) Thanks, Jim. Uh, I appreciate you uh, tolerating me commenting through your comment. I don't know. I feel Al Pacino doing Shakespeare just doesn't feel right to me. (laughs) Wow. I was a merchant oh. in, Venice. in Venice. Where where do you do your merchantry, Al? Everywhere. You're doing fucking, uh, uh, what's his name? It's Devil's Advocate. That's what he says in oh. that movie. Well, I'm thinking of Gary Oldman in uh, The Professional. Oh, like, yeah. Bring me everyone. I mean, everyone's, everyone! The last comment, Jason, comes from Rose White. And Rose says... This is my favorite Hamlet adaptation, though honestly, shout out to Hamlet 2000 for having Ham be an edgy film bro and casting Kyle MacLachlan as Claudius and Bill Murray as Polonius, for that matter. Thank you, Rose White. Thank you for two things. One, thank you for acknowledging that that film exists. And two, thank you for being my favorite person whose first name and last name are both colors. Wow. I I did pick that one because you had mentioned that movie. Well, thank you again, Rose. But yeah, no, that's a great movie. That's a great. That's a fun. That's a fun take on Hamlet. You should really watch it. I'll check it out. Uh, you do a Hamlet. Actually, you know what? Don't sleep tonight. Watch this Hamlet. Watch Wait, this Rana, one again. The, we, obviously, for you know, for, to compare us and see. You watch that first. Then you yeah. watch uh, the Branagh Hamlet. Okay. Then you watch the the Ethan Hawke Hamlet. I. But then you go back in time and you watch the Mel Gibson Hamlet. Okay, I don't know if I literally have enough hours until my shift starts. Just tomorrow. run them at twice twice speed. Uh, so Jason, you sleeping over tonight? Oh, I got shit to do, but I I have faith in you that you can handle this. Mm. Get back to me. I, I'll expect a report in the morning, no less than thirty five hundred words. Jesus Christ, I've got a long night, folks. <laughs> this is gonna be a short uh, short episode. Watch it, watching these movies at three point five speed and <laughs> typing on it very fast. <laughs> All right, our last thing, Jason. Before we get to this week's movie, which of course is Goodbye, Mister Chips, mm. uh, we have to uh, mention the AFI list, the yeah. American Film Institute, and see where what fell at number. 69 on the AFI. So on the BFI, of course, it was Hamlet. And we're going to compare it to number 69 on the AFI, which is... In that sexy slot. Tootsie. Oh. I've never actually seen Tootsie. I'm, I'm fully aware of it because uh, I have a, you know, uh, I like to think I have my finger on the pulse of modern pop culture. Okay, I was a little worried when you started that. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm most familiar with it, certainly, from its joke on Family Guy, where uh, Stewie basically does the whole Tootsie thing for 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. As a flashback, I'm mm-hmm. sure. It's a cutaway gag, yeah, absolutely. It's so rare. He does on that the show. whole like uh, taxi, taxi, taxi. So so rare to see on that yeah, show. I know. And of course, <laughs> by joke, you mean they just do the scene. Yes, but that's enough about Family Guy. What did you think? Have you seen this movie? I like Tootsie a lot. Yeah. So I I have to go with Tootsie. Tootsie, it is. Yeah. And you, I guess you got to go with Hamlet. I by the go with Hamlet by default. A movie yeah. that you were crazy about. Yeah, I adored. But now that that's out of the way, Jason. Thank you, everyone, for the comments, Thank you. the questions, and the concerns, and the poetry, and the memories. Uh, now we are going to talk about this week's film, which, of course, is Goodbye, Mr. Chips. 
open the bag. That theme can only mean one thing, Jason. And I can tell you it's not a Christmas movie, despite what you may have thought from the bells in the opening of it. I am going to have a full-on diehard argument here. <laughs> Goodbye, Mr. Chips. It's a goddamn Christmas movie. <gasps> this is going to be a bloodbath. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take the nation by storm. <laughs> We're starting a new debate, Jason. I don't even remember if Christmas even shows up in 1939's Goodbye, Mr. Chips. It does, in one scene. Does it? Yeah. The Christmas tree is right there in the background. Uh, but did they mention it? I mean, the Christmas tree. <laughs> do they acknowledge the Christmas tree? Do they like, oh, look, look, do you like my Christmas tree? I don't remember. Because it's Christmas, obviously. Jason, I watched this like two days ago. Oh, okay, why would you remember that? <laughs> why would I remember that? We. I watched it today. Why would I remember it? Because you are a maniac. On the floor. Mm. And I'm dancing like she's never danced before. A line from this week's film, number 72 on the list, director Sam Wood's Goodbye, Mr. Chips, 1939. That is, is the full title. And, and folks, this is not a movie about a cookie mogul. <laughs> uh, this is not a movie about piles of cow shit. No. This is not a movie about a man who makes his loving selling fish and chips on the main streets of Keep London. Keep going. What else is this not a movie about? This is not a movie about uh, Star Trek characters. This is not a movie mm-hmm. about children, per se. I mean, children are in it, certainly. And I guess it ultimately is about All right, felt the rails there. It definitely is children. <laughs> um, so, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Number 72 on the list. So, uh, down, down quite a ways. Um, let's talk about the cast real quick here. Yes. We got Robert Donnett who we talked about in uh, The 39 Steps was our lead. Yes, doing a wonderful turn in this film. Yeah, very... If I, if I wouldn't have known it was no. him, I would not have known. Yeah, I'd have never known. Uh, so he's playing, of course, the title character of Mr. Chips. Mr. Chipping. Mr. Chipping, later known as Chips. Chips. Yeah. Greer Garson, it's actually in her motion picture debut, Jason, plays Catherine. Terry Kilburn plays Peter Colley the first, the second, the third, and John Colley. He really gets in uh, in some screen time in this movie. Uh, our old pal John Mills plays Peter Colley as a young man. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Henride plays Max Steffel or Stafel. Yeah. Judith First plays Flora. Lynn Harding is Doctor Weatherby. And Milton Rosmer is Chatteris. So in other words, a whole bunch of people most people have never heard of, ever. Most people. Having don't. done this podcast, I recognized Robert Donnett yep. and uh, John Mills. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Not recognize them on screen, mm-hmm. just their names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is a kind of an epic movie in yep. the sense that it is much like the parody film Epic Movie. No, <laughs> it is an epic movie in the sense that this centers on one person, basically. We follow Mr. Chipping. Yeah. And he kind of lives through history yeah. of all these things happening around him. And I wrote down, this is Forrest Gump, right? Yeah, in the sense that if Forrest Gump wasn't actually directly involved with most of that stuff, it just kind of happened alongside and it was acknowledged. But yeah. yes, this this is a movie that takes place over a very specific period of time, a, per- time, a period of great change. It feels like, but it kind of felt like Forrest Gump took elements of this. Mm. Like, I, I, like, I'm watching this and I'm like, Robert Zemeckis watched this movie. Mm. And he's like... 
I'm going to take some of this. Yeah. <laughs> the idea of living through these uh, important times, I think, like of a character kind of... Well, and kind of he lives through so many other deaths, too. Yeah. Like all the like in Forrest Gump, anybody who's not Forrest Gump mostly just dies. Yeah. And that's a lot of what happens here, too. It's kind of life, though, isn't it? Jason? Everybody's not you just kind of dies? Don't bring this podcast down. I mean, it's just fact. <sighs> but yeah, this the, you say this movie is an epic, and it, it is in a lot of ways. Like, it really, it structurally, it reminds me of Gandhi. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, like, just right at the beginning. Remember when Mr. Chips gets assassinated right at the beginning of the movie? Of course, and then, yeah. It's a classic And then later scene. we see that again at the end. That uh, is not what happens. That's not what happens, no. Mr. Chips dies in his bed. Um, so basically, we, uh, let, let's just... Let's, break down real quick what this is so it's about a teacher named mr chipping mr chipping he's a young fella he's he's fresh he's new it's 1870 and he wants to be a teacher at a boys school yeah so he goes through of course at first he's very shy he has a hard time connecting with the children Mm -hmm. he takes a trip he takes a vacation uh to switzerland i think uh austria austria okay takes a vacation to austria where he meets Catherine, who's Mm -hmm. very uh uh, I don't want to say flighty, but she's very... Um, she's a suffragette. She's a strong woman. She, she Very. For 1939, incredibly strong female well, and for, character. And for 18-whatever. Like, this is like... Eight, by that point, it's like, what, 1885 or something? Yeah, yeah. Like, the, the year Doc Brown went back to the Old West? Of course. We yeah. all know, yeah. Huh. But, I mean, for a movie released in 1939, incredibly strong female character. Yes. Um, but, yeah, he meets up with her. They kind of fall in love, and she kind of brings out the... Brings him out of his shell. Yes. Um, Warms his icy heart, I believe, uh, Google described it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he lives through a lot of stuff. Uh, the, the First World War, uh, pe- people being sent off to war. He, he sees many different generations of the same yep. uh, the same family, so that's why we have like one actor playing like yeah, four different like versions. Five generations of, pa- of collies. Yeah, of collies. And, um, and yeah, and eventually, I mean, we get to the point where he's on his deathbed and he passes away having had this amazing teaching career for years yeah. and years. We, we really only see three distinct periods of his life. We kind of see the beginning of his life when he first gets there to the school and is, you know, kind of getting used to it. We see kind of his midlife where he, uh, a little bit of teaching, he goes off, he meets Catherine, he comes back, they get married, they, uh, he knocks her up. Uh, so he, he was virile, he was ready to go. Um, and then she goes ahead and tries to have the baby and, and just, you know, like so many women at that time, was selfish and died. And, uh, <laughs> oh, God, I'm getting, I'm going to so get hate from my wife. Uh, and, yeah. No, but so she, she dies and it's very tragic because he finally found love. But then that love took away from him. But he stays, you know, he stays ahead of the game and he keeps teaching and they try to make him retire and he won't do it and nobody will let him and then he stays around for five more years and everybody loves him and then he retires and then he hangs out with the boys and feeds them cake and then he dies. Okay, well, uh, God save the queen. <laughs> We're not done yet, motherfucker. Well, where do you want to start here, Jason? Let's talk about, maybe we should start t- by talking about Robert Donnett. Yes. Uh, particularly because he's playing the title character. He is. He was, of course, the title character in The 39 Steps. Mm-hmm. Um, very different performance here, yes. obviously. He's not his usual charming self from the beginning. No. I mean, at the beginning, he is a little bit because we have this sort of English patient style of telling a tale. Yes. Where we start at the end and we do a flashback. We, we see him as an old man and he's quite, he's got the twinkle in his eye. He's, you know, he's got a great sense of humor. Like, I think that's why the kids ultimately love him is he's got a good sense of humor. He under, He's understanding. He's merciful. Yeah. He's uh, not like... Uh, Many teachers of this type that we've seen on screen before, headmasters and, and such, where they're just tyrants, you know. And it, and by the way, this is the second of two movies with Robert Donnett where he has a scene where he is hiding his face with a newspaper on a train. <laughs> wow. Maybe that's his thing. That's 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 what, what, what feed out to Quentin Tarantino. That is to Robert Donnett. It is in his writer. <laughs> 
So, oh, interesting thing to note, too, a little thing that was pointed out to me. Uh, if you look at the movie poster for this movie, it makes no sense because we see Robert Donnett and what's her name? Uh, Greer Garson. Greer Garson on the uh, poster together. But Robert Donnett is just Robert Donnett. He's not, doesn't, doesn't even have a mustache. He's yeah. like, and they meet by the time that he's a little older and has a mustache and some lines on his face because they use pretty good old age makeup throughout this movie that actually works really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he has a mighty Ned Flanders-esque mustache that uh, is so perfect for such a lovely old man to have. The only downside, I think, to his performance mm. a little bit is that he, I feel like there are a few times where he overplays the old man thing a little bit. Yep. I mean, but that, I mean, 1939. But I think that, like, and I think that kind of falls in with this type of sentimentalist movie. Like, this is very much a movie that's like a warm, fuzzy, like, yeah. look back at this guy's life. There's, there's a little bit of conflict. Like, obviously his wife dies and he uh, has I mean, I think there's a, quite a bit of conflict, honestly, but, but it, it gets dealt with fairly yeah, quickly, It's like, it's never, it's never a big thing. It's never, other than, I would say, yeah, the what, death of his wife and child. Uh, other than that, like, everything he deals with is pretty minor overall. And it doesn't dissuade him from staying at this school and, and and continuing to educate these boys, despite the fact that sometimes they pull silly pranks, uh, which I have to point out right now while it's in my head. The prank where, obviously, it's, and it's a tough scene because it's just after he's learned his wife has died. Right. They're going to call a substitute in, but he won't let them. So he goes into class, and the students have arranged what is quite possibly the stupidest prank I think I've ever seen. I don't know who this is supposed to be funny to. No, but because you see, Jason, when he opens letters... Yeah. They will just have blank pieces of paper. Yeah. So he goes on his desk and he opens his letter and he opens it up and the piece of paper inside is blank and he looks at both sides and it's blank and they all have a big laugh. What you don't, what, 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 I don't know that you, if you noticed this, but on his desk, there's like 400 of these letters that they wrote up and they're all blank and they blew the joke after the first letter. So why did they bother going through the trouble of writing up 400 fucking letters with nothing in them? What a, what a waste of time. These guys could have like, they, they could have just murdered them. That would have been a better prank, and it would have taken less work. Well, imagine the egg on their face, though, when they realize that his wife had just passed away. Yeah. And th- mm. here they are murdering, strangling their him, and then it's just the just it fades out as one of the kids whispers into his ear, "Goodbye, Mister Chips." That is uh, that is a haunting. Well, no, because this is in my alternate universe version of this movie where Mister Chips goes to the school, but then it turns out he's a rapist and he's raping the kids, and then they get revenge on him and they say goodbye to Mister Chips when they kill him. So what I wanted to point out... I'm sorry, I've been hanging out with my friend James too much. Uh, James, uh... <laughs> Look, let's, let's not get into last names here. He's a person I work with. He's a, he's a very creative writer, and that's exactly the sort of story he would come up with. So what I wanted to point out in this scene, um, when you when you kind of mentioned that uh, they have this scene of uh, of the, the kids are pulling this April Fool's Day prank up. This is after his wife has already passed away. Um, what I really like is how the emotional moments in this scene are, in this movie, really are handled. Because, you know, you have this bit where they're kind of like they're laughing at the prank and they're not aware of what's going on uh, in his life. And then you have the other kid coming in and slowly you see like the room kind of murmurs like they're finding out that his wife has just passed away. And there's kind of this calm, like this kind of mournful calm. And uh, they all just kind of like shut up and look ahead, right? And it it kind of speaks to every emotional moment in this movie kind of because Mm. even when you get the death of Catherine, like Catherine's death in the movie is all off screen. Mm. Um, We know that she was trying to deliver a child. She had a miscarriage and and died during childbirth. And and we know that from so little dialogue. Exactly. Almost nothing. Yeah. Okay. No, but she she basically it's like we get the sense because we see the doctor earlier with with, um, Bobby Donnett, with uh, Chippy. And, Bob Don, uh, Bob Don with Chip, yeah. and uh, he's like, no, no, he's like, go to school, so we'll, we'll keep an eye on her, or whatever. Yeah. I thought, oh, she's sick. Like, no, no, she's pregnant. Okay, okay, I got it. And then yeah, the, we, we see the scene. The door opens. A nurse comes out. She just looks down to the nurse and goes, 
or the one the one goes uh, uh, the what was her name Catherine she's like Catherine or the, yeah. the mother and, and the baby too and that's it and then the one just start bursts out crying it's just so simple so effective gets yeah. it across we know everything we need to know from about five words and this is a, this is a great little trait of a lot of movies at this time is that they are very minimalist yes. in this kind of thing yeah so it's a sentimental film yes. yes but the way it gets across that sentiment is not overt no and I, I just really and that's and that's that. where the subtlety and art I think comes into this movie because I don't think this movie is particularly like like it's it's, it's not a standout as far as its cinematography goes. No, I think it's shot it's pretty very, standard, very straightforward, very straightforwardly yeah. shot. There are a few little things here and there, but yeah, it's mostly pretty but, point and shoot. But the 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 quality in it really comes from the performances mm-hmm. uh, uh, and like like that those moments. I do like there are some like interesting little moments though cinematography and like editing wise. Um, I do like the uh, so so to, in order to show like a passage of time, you see all these uh, roll calls yeah. for all the boys going to the school, and they're they're kind of headgear changes. Yeah, like they're, the, they're, the they're fashion outfits. changes. Exactly, yeah. they start off wearing like kind of tall top hats, and then eventually they get to the point where by I think the end of it they're wearing like beanies. Like Cub Scout beanies. If any of you listeners out there were in the Cub Scouts in Canada before about 1991, you'll remember those green beanies. That's what those reminded me of. And that's that. And also there's a nice little thing with, um, there's a little music tie-in with him and Catherine. Mm. So, of course, they have their first dance to the Blue Danube Waltz. And every time he kind of thinks about her or he kind of, there's kind of a moment where they're kind of, uh, you know, just any kind of reference to their relationship, he hears that music. And it's a nice little musical cue to their to their relationship. And where is the Blue Danube? I don't know. It's a river, Brendan. What country is the Blue Danube run through? Uh, Europe. Well, that's the start. You are correct, but let's get a little more specific, Brendan. I don't Brendan. know why. Just a, a certain Teutonic country of very serious people. What What would that country be? Russia? Oh, you're close. You're getting there. They're getting there. It's a little closer to Central, Central uh, Europe there. Uh, you know, uh, they, they have mustaches. They sometimes like to stick their hands in the Germany? air. Germany? There you go. Right through Germany. Okay. Oh, so that's an interesting tie-in too. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. There's some interesting German tie-ins in this movie, Brendan, that uh, if you'll forgive me for a moment and put on my tinfoil hat here, I think that this is one of those movies that was made in such a way as to not be offensive... To Nazi authorities. I don't know, though, because there's some World War One content in this A little film. bit. A very little bit. Now, the mm-hmm. reason I'm saying that is because this movie came out on May 15th, 1939. Now, this yeah. is about... That release date in the UK is about two months away from Were you there? Two. I was. Okay. Uh, I so was party. It was great. It was a great time. It was yeah. a wonderful premiere. Was Bob a little... <laughs> no, <laughs> you know Bob. Yeah. You Bob, know Bob. Bobby Don. But, okay, so here's, here's the thing. So, in the original book, uh, when... Uh, Chippy goes on vacation, Mr. Mm-hmm. Chips. When he goes on vacation, he goes up to Northern England. Okay. And that's where he meets Catherine. Mm-hmm. In this movie, for reasons I don't specifically know, that has changed to Austria, mm-hmm. which is a Germanic country and an ally of Germany. Mm-hmm. He has a German friend uh, who's Max, a lovely man who Max, is always ready to celebrate. Steffel, yeah. yeah. He's always ready to celebrate, Max. Um, and... So, yeah, so we've got this kind of positive. We meet a lot of nice Germanic peoples. I mean, it is Austria. It's not Germany. Uh, and then when the war stuff happens, we don't mention Germany all that much. There's a little bit of mention and then of the deaths of the soldiers and everything. But, like, no mention. Germany is, is given a very kind of, like, the Germanic peoples are given a very, like, soft image in this movie. But do you think that's to kind of make a sort of complicated portrayal? Like, do you think it's more like, I don't know if it's more so like, um... Avoiding like demonizing the 
German people because I don't really need to demonize anyone no, in this movie. No, it's no, not no. that kind no, of No, I'm not movie. saying that they need to demonize anybody. What I'm yeah. saying is, is that it strikes me as very strange that they went to the trouble of changing the, the vacation from Northern England to Austria. Now, to be yeah. fair, Austria certainly is a more picturesque to place. To be, to be fair. fair. Austria is a very picturesque place. There's lots mm. of mountains uh, um, and, you know, Lederhosen. Uh, to wear, of course. obviously, uh, but I got—I've just got the real sense. It's like because it feels so unnecessary that they change this from the book. Like, why would they go to the trouble of changing this? Because even that character Max is in the book, but he's in there really only in relation to the war chapters. When I guess they discuss his ultimate fate of dying in the Saxon regiment. Well, and I mean, let's talk about Max a little bit because yeah. later in the movie, much later in the movie, maybe this even ties into your you know tinfoil yeah. argument. He—we find out Max fought for the Germans. He did. He did. He went and home. Chip. Uh, Chipping still memorializes him at yep. the school. Now there is a moment though where the kids kind of mention like yeah. he even memorialized like Max. He said, wait, he no because he's like wait the Saxon regiment, so he fought for the enemy. <laughs> yeah, and they're saying like why would he m- memorialize this man when he mm. fought for the Germans? And they were, and you know the response is well, well he's his friend. Like mm. ultimately they were friends, and I feel like I don't know because I feel like that kind of conflicting thing. Maybe maybe the. You might be right, yeah. but I'm, maybe they just added that to give it more of a conflict. Like with with that moment there, that feels like to me like the movie knows it's borderline wrong mm. to, for that memorial to take place. Yeah. But because even the kids question it, and they don't come away thinking like, "Oh, it's a good thing that he did it." They just say, "Why would he do that?" It does give uh, Chipping's character as a guy that's he's clearly able to see beyond such minor things as nationality. You know? Yeah. I thought you were going to say such minor things as Nazism. Or <laughs> no, no, that wasn't until later. That was, that was long. He, uh, and actually, actually that's another thing about the history of this. I need to talk about too, is the, the period that this covers. So when they're on the train originally, mm. They're talking about the the this is Frank, in, 18, in 1870, the, yeah. which it's and then this all syncs up perfectly with history because the the Franco-Prussian War between Prussia, James Franco-Prussian War, James Franco-Prussian War, but the, between uh, Prussia and its allied states and uh, France started in August of 1870. So this is about September. The the war lasts, I think, for about five six months, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a decisive win for Germany. Uh, well, Germany, Prussia, and its allied states that then become the United German Empire, such right. that it was that we knew the empire that then fl- flourished for how many years? Forty years, and then went into World War One, and then was subsequently brought down. Um, so his his life is interesting because it covers that period from the unification of Germany in 1870 or 1871, I guess, really January through to uh, if you read the book. Now in the movie, the the dates kind of don't jive the same as the book. Yeah, they don't. There's a lot of discrepancy. There is a bit the of dates. discrepancy, yeah. but in the book, the movie. Well, it, it, sorry, in the movie, he retires like 1928, but in the book, it's 1933. Okay. And the thing about 1933, who came to Hitler? Uh, who came to Hitler? Who came to power in 1933? Howard. Why it was Howard Hitler? <laughs> it was Hitler. Uh, so he kind of covers like I don't know, and, it, and it's a weird thing because he's like you know he's not German, he's not in Germany, but. His life in the school covers the existence of the German Empire and mm-hmm. then of the Weimar state into Nazi Germany. That's Fascinating stuff. That is very interesting. Yeah. But I really think I really think that this movie was massaged a bit to be a little nicer for the German market. Not that they not that they like went out of their way to change much, but just those little things just felt like little sweeteners to be like, mm, it'll just go down a little easier over there. So you think that's like a studio thing? Yeah, no, the studio <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, well, could we make the German character have a little more role? You know, um, but I do. It, that being said, yes. I still enjoy the Blue Danube waltz. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's a great, great choice. Their, great their, choice to their love. Yeah, 
Um, why don't we actually listen to a little scene? So this is actually when Chipping meets Catherine for the first time. And he meets her in Austria, like you said, um, climbing a mountain. He actually hears a woman scream out. And it's just her yelling, having a good time, because mm. because she's waiting for the mist to clear before she climbs down. As everyone warns him, if there's mist, stay put, wait till it clears, then leave. I have a theory. She was masturbating. All right. Why wouldn't you be on a mountain with the, in the mist where nobody can see you? That's what I'd be doing. I mean, maybe that says a lot about me, and maybe that's uh, something I shouldn't have revealed, but that would be me. Jason, it was 1939. No one knew how to masturbate yet. Good point. Masturbating good point. was founded in 1982. Oh, that's that's exciting. That was the year before I was born. That explains why I love it so much. So let's listen to this. <laughs> A penny for your thoughts. Well, as a matter of fact, I was thinking of you. Kindly, I hope. I see very little of ladies at Brookfield. I was rather realizing what I'd missed. If I may say so, Mr. Chipping, I think the ladies have missed a great deal, too. Oh, it's very kind of you, but I'm really not a ladies' man. Afraid of them? Ooh, terrified. <laughs> Not of me, I hope. No, not up here in the clouds. Perhaps the altitude's gone to my head. But if I'd met you at the inn... Because I'm a strong-minded female who rides a bicycle and wants the boat. Oh, no, no, on the contrary. Because... Because? Well, because you're so very nice-looking, I think, and charming. So are you, Mr. Chipping, frankly. Good heavens. No one has ever called me that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what extraordinary ideas come into one's head up here. It's the altitude. Do you experience a sort of exhilaration? Definitely. As though we owned the mountain? To put it mildly. We're a pretty superior person. We're gods. Up here there's no time. No growing old. Nothing lost. We're young. We believe in ourselves. We have faith in the future. It must be the altitude. <laughs> I just really think that conversation is very lovely. Mm, um, is. So that's like one of the first times they talk, and and there's no, you know, there's chemistry immediately. Obviously, yeah. Then I just want to say too, this is Greer Garson's first film. Mm. She has a screen presence, like a oh, yeah. really good screen presence, right from the get go. Yeah, I'd never heard of her before. Uh, uh, she's an up and comer for sure, and she, I she... hope to see where she goes from here. <laughs> I have some horrible news for oh. you. Oh, <laughs> I believe she's passed. Oh no. Um, I do know that um, before this movie, she actually turned down... Now, the, keep in mind, this is her first movie. Mm. She turned down several roles because she thought the roles were not well-written female parts. That's a very bold move for someone who doesn't have any movies under their belt. That's And that's, a, that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's an actress in 1939 saying, I don't think this is an appropriately written female part i don't yeah. think it's I, I think i'm just here to do this or i'm just here to do that like that so i wonder if she was as ballsy in real life as her character is uh it portrayed feels, to be it feels like a little bit i, I think you have to be to be in hollywood I, I feel like um i feel like that had something to do with the casting yeah i mean yeah and she just she explodes onto the scene i mean we'll get into it later but i mean she gets nominated for an oscar like mm-hmm. it's first movie first effort appearance on screen mm-hmm. so i mean it's 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 kind of it's kind of crazy um it's crazy uh, so I mean I, talk, I want to go back to Robert Donovan for a second. So he he his performance as Chips, again with the whole thing with this with the sympathetic stuff in this movie not being overt. Um, there's a great thing where he he's he's kind of reminiscing about his teaching career, and you know they ask him like, um, uh, how did you you know you you reconnected with these kids? And he says it took time, and then he kind of pauses and he goes, too much time. 
Yeah, so like he, uh, like too much time. Like he's kind of mournful. It's almost like I, when I was watching it at first, I wrote the note down as I watched it, but I was mm. wrote like, I feel like there's going to be something coming up where like he feels like he failed someone mm. and it led to their death or something. And I think we kind of get that later yeah. with that young man who says he wants to fight. Yeah. And and Chipping is, is very Ferguson much Ferguson like, or something. Yeah. yeah, Ferguson. And Chipping is very much like, oh well, I don't know why you're gonna, you want to fight because this is going to be over in a week. This is not going to be a war. They even brush off. <laughs> there's a kind of a funny retrospect scene where they brush off like anything in the news. Well, Archduke Ferdinand's been killed. Oh well, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's one of those Which, things. There's, there's another moment like that. Too. Started the war. <laughs> there's another moment like that too. I looked this up on TV tropes because I I knew I had to see if this was maybe one of the earlier moments of this, but the the uh, oh, they'll never amount to anything. H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells. It's like, oh, it's too fantastical. Nobody will ever buy that. And I went and looked it up, and no, it wasn't the first. There was at least one movie in 1923 that did that. Very early on, though, yeah. in that trope. Um, that's yeah. a trope that I like. I see now, and I'm just like, oh, right, no, yeah, no. I know. Every time travel movie. <laughs> oh, my God. Or, or looking back on something, you know. Like Jersey Girl. Like the fresh Prince of Bel Air is yeah. going to have a movie exactly. career, and I'm like, you get it? Because <laughs> he does. Because he got super famous. Uh, ben Affleck's a dumbass. But uh, but Robert Donut portrays this um, this great relationship. He has this relationship with the children is so interesting. because yeah. he starts off, he's very shy. Yeah. Um, doesn't really have authority. Doesn't really have authority. They kind of end up respecting him for his te- for his knowledge first, because yeah. he he teaches Latin. He's very well versed in it. Um, but he has a huge mess up at the beginning, yeah, near the beginning of the film, because he uh, he keeps them in the class for acting up, yeah, and that was the day of the big game, yeah. and because the, their best bat boy is in the class, they end up losing the game, wow. and and after that, you know, they kind of he's he's very mournful because he wants them to like him yeah. as a friend, yes, which is at one point even says if I don't have your friendship, then I don't have anything, right? Which which I appreciate that view. I mean, but also as a teacher, I don't know that it's necessarily your job to be their friend so much as to educate them. But mm-hmm. I understand the desire because if I was in his position, yeah, I'd want to be friends with these kids. I'd want them to like me. This feels like a precursor to a lot of modern movies. It feels like a precursor yeah. to uh, like Mr. Holland's Opus. Exactly. That's the movie I kept thinking of yeah. this whole time. It's like if they just had a fucking orchestra in here, it'd be Mr. Holland's Opus. Yeah, it's that inspirational teacher. Yeah. It doesn't start out so hot. And eventually by the end of the film, he's garnered the respect and, and, and you can see that in other movies too like a movie like say stand and deliver is not exactly that but mm-hmm. about a teacher coming in and getting the respect of the students and I becoming mean, beloved i mean if you want to go to like those troubled school movies you yeah. can say like dangerous, dangerous minds dangerous minds yeah. uh there's like uh, even even sports movies like there's coach carter there's yeah. like uh you know all, so finding forrester finding forrester you're the man now dog all the man now dog <laughs> it's because of that movie I wear my socks inside out. I, I'm I telling you right the, now. I discovered the cure for cancer and then I lost it. <laughs> That's the same movie, right? <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, I feel like I've watched this movie. I'm like, this is the basis for every inspirational teacher movie. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And absolutely. in 1939. And then remade it in 69. And then remade it again in 1980. And then remade it again in tw- uh, 2002. Yeah, so many times. So this, is, this is a movie that has been remade many times. We will only cover one more of these, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there, and and again, we talked about like you know the 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 fact that it's you know shot fairly straightforward, yeah. but there there is like a, some stuff like I noticed like um, there's early scenes where Chipping is kind of looking out at the at the head, at the other headmasters yeah. 
being kind of like, you know, the kids really like them. And you see the kind of the torment on his face. Like, I wish I could have some kind of rapport with these children. Yeah. Like, other, otherwise, he's just alone. How do I reach them? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How do I reach one. these kids? It's like fucking uh, Dead Poets Society. Yeah. <laughs> another one. That, there uh, you go. Exactly. Yeah. Um, not, as tr- not as crazy an ending as that. Yeah. Wait. I mean, I guess he dies, but probably not as tragically as that in that movie. Wait, is he getting a blowjob when he dies? Wait, no, that's uh, T.S. Garp. That's a different movie. What he doesn't are die. you talking about? Rob Williams, he's getting a blowjob in the car, and then the car crash. Wait, no, that's not how it went. No, no, he crashes the car into his wife's car where his wife is blowing a young man, and she bites off the young man's dick, and then his kid, who is riding on his lap in the car, dies. What is this movie? Oh, uh, The World According to Garp. It's a fantastic movie with Robin Williams. It's horrifying. Yeah, that scene is horrifying, but the movie's great. (laughs) Um, I assure you, that's the most horrifying scene in the movie. Uh, there's 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 even uh, I mean this is a drama there's even some funny little moments uh, what did you think of the scene where so it's after Chipping has met Catherine he's yes. obviously quite enamored with her yeah and he's with his buddy Stiffle uh, and they try to find Catherine and Flora and they think they found their bicycles yes yeah, so and they these see two bicycles. hefty women come up. these 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 women that are the most like cartoonish versions of suffragettes that you could possibly imagine the most severe women that come out are like yes you asked to talk to us what do you think what, what do you want you have designs on me <laughs> as a lady <laughs> I mean, it, it is funny, but it's also like you got really. I mean, this is definitely 1939. They just literally picked them out of like a newspaper cartoon of like yeah. anti suffragette shit. Like, I, I I do like uh, I do like um, as well with with, uh, with um, Catherine. One of her lines is even at one point like, "We just want this, this, and the vote." And mm. I'm like, "Shit, yeah, that's right. That's when it was. That's when this shit was going down, man." Yeah. Um, Ladies inter- riding bicycles, so yes. ridiculous. We can't be having that anymore. <laughs> Uh, what's interesting too is that she like and this is probably a little bit different uh, of a dynamic too of a relationship where she is a stronger woman and Chipping is clearly a more sensitive guy and, yeah. and he's not you know he's not this manly man that you so often see even even as manly as Robert Donnett was in a movie like The 39 Steps well, that's the know? thing he does a complete 180 from yeah. that movie he's a very different he's character he's not just altogether. a dashing like spy hero no <laughs> like in that movie I feel like he's very much like the archetype I mean he's great in that movie don't get me wrong He's like all people from Winnipeg. He's fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, because he's definitely from Winnipeg. That's right. <laughs> Clearly. 100%. Winnipeg. <laughs> Winnipeg. Um, yeah, no, that's true. Because Catherine is the dominant character in this relationship. Mm. And again, like you said, this is a very not common thing. Even now, yeah. honestly. Yeah, no, this this is definitely the type of character that if you saw it in a maybe a different type of movie in this era, she would very much be like a Widowmaker, like some sort of villain that was trying to draw him in with sexuality because she was strong and sexual. And, yeah. you know, and then, and then the Hayes Code came in and you couldn't make those movies anymore. Goddamn Robert Hayes, mm. just because you were an airplane, you think you own the world. <laughs> this is my film industry and my code. <laughs> Robert Hayes? <laughs> yes, I'm here to say hello. I hear you like having dead celebrities on here, and I didn't figure I'd have any other chance to visit other than this specific reference. So you... I'm going to take off. I'm very, very high on cocaine right now, and I need to leave. Are you dead? Still dead. Oh. I didn't yeah, know no, that. he did. I didn't even know he was sick. Yeah. Wait a second. Hey, Siri, when did Robert Hayes die? Robert Hayes died the 20th of Ooh. November, 2011, at age 69. Okay, so that was Robert Hayes, the Australian legal academic. Wait, I was thinking of Robert, um, what's the other guy? The guy from uh, from uh, Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, Robert. 
Stack. Robert Stack. That's who I was. That's why oh. I was doing that voice. I thought it was Robert Stack. Oh no no no! Robert Hayes is lead guy. So yeah, no, that wasn't Robert. That wasn't Robert Hayes. That wasn't Robert Stack. That was me doing a voice. Strike that from the record. Strike it from the record. Robert Hayes, if you are still alive, we apologize. Yes, sir. Hey Siri, is Robert Hayes the actor still alive? Which one? Here are some options starring Robert Hayes: extinct or alive, hoarding, <laughs> Never buried mind, alive. Staying alive. Siri. Stay alive. Siri, go alive. fuck yourself. Why are there so many movies about him being alive? Do you want to hear the next five? Fuck you. <laughs> I won't respond to that. I've had enough of that Siri today. Dumb Irish bastard. Uh, <laughs> so, Jason, where do you want to go next with this? Uh, well, let's, uh, let's see here. Uh, I wanted to say about this movie, I like the old age makeup, but I already said that. Rough and tumble boys having good times. You know, it's uh, everybody loves that sort of stuff. There's a real beautiful moment where um, she he he finally has his moment where he kind of breaks he kind of breaks out of a shell. It helps that he has her feelings revealed to her while he's like sitting out on the deck after uh, after the party. He's just out having a pipe, and uh, she walks out on the deck and starts talking with her her suffragette uh, uh, friend. Uh, I'm not assuming they're in a re- lesbian relationship, but. You know, anything could happen. I have to keep the movie interesting for me. Um, but they start having a conversation, and uh, she basically just reveals that she really likes him and thinks he's cool. And so he knows that he has the go-ahead in that situation. Oh, yeah, no, I just mean, like, she opens him up out of a shell. I mean, I'm talking about the moment where she says, well, why don't you tell one of your, like, silly Latin puns? Yeah, He yes. likes to do all these Latin puns that he uh, he enjoys, and she really likes them. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, that's silly. The kids won't like them. Yeah. And there's this great, like, moment where he tells... One of the puns in school, he finally does it. Yeah. The kids just kind of stare, and there's that delayed moment. It's another trope that's, I don't think, common then, mm. but definitely now, where like someone does something, there's like silence for unrealistic yeah. amount of time, and then someone either just starts clapping or laughing yeah. or whatever, and everybody joins in. And and the laughter in this scene makes me think that, that Catherine went down to the school, got all the boys together, and said, look, he's going to tell a fucking joke today, and if you don't laugh, and if you don't laugh the hardest you've ever laughed, I'm going to come down here, and I'm going to beat the shit out of every last one of you. Perhaps because because when when uh, is it Bullock or the the fat kid starts laughing he's like <laughs> you know he's really going also on on a side note here a lot of fat jokes in this movie as a fat person a fat Canadian uh, I was offended by the many fat jokes oh putting it away there Miller oh, you better put her away you're making the fat jokes about the fat kid that was perfectly acceptable in those days you just make a fat oh look at the fat kid did you, you just cancel funny? did you just cancel goodbye I did jokes? I just canceled it fat pride. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to have to do another movie before yeah. we do our award show. No, done. Throw it out. <laughs> it's off the list. <laughs> goodbye, Mr. Chips. That's what I'm saying. But there, but there is... Uh, so that, that Hashtag great, goodbye, Mr. Chips. That great, that's, you're just going to think that's the movie. <laughs> Hashtag goodbye, goodbye. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a thing where he tells... He finally does tell one of those puns. Like you said, yeah, the laughter comes in. Um, and then he even kind of I don't know to me it looked like he had a moment where he kind of doubted for a second if they were genuinely laughing yeah no they totally no sold him for so long yeah and then he was just like oh, okay okay that's yeah, enough that's, that's enough, enough. That's, it wasn't and, that funny come and then, on and then he kind of got gets into a little bit like oh shit like I may have connected somewhat to these people mm. and she's also the one that suggests they fucking they have tea 
I like they, they 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 invite yeah. anyone over who wants to have tea and cake and 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 the kids come right over and they all have a good laugh and they're all and having... then and then that pays off in a funny moment later when when he's a very old man and the the kids are pranking him with another really hilarious prank where they send him to uh, 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 his door and are like oh he wants to have tea with you so go knock on the door and they all hide behind the fucking statue and they're snickering and he opens the door and he's like I was told that I was to come here and have tea with you and he's like okay and he looks around and he sees him by the fountain he's like oh yes come on in we'll have tea and then he like gives him a massive piece of cake and sponge cake and tea he turns the tables on the kids that oh, were breaking yeah. the other kid it's great he did, he, it's the best like the, the most positive fuck you in the world yeah. and, and then of course <laughs> then he finds out the kid is Collie another Collie he's the Collie the son of the Collie that died in World War One. right the so, one that, whose mom he would go visit and fuck possibly we don't see it but there's a heavy heavy implication from you that uh, that Just happened me yeah you told me <laughs> you said oh that was happening um, so I, I want to talk about actually um, I wish I had the clip because it's my favorite scene in the entire movie and it's really effective this is in the midst of World War One, mm-hmm. and the bombings are going on outside which I don't understand okay I, I, that was the one part of the movie that really confused me because now I'm I'm not a historian like Dan Carlin. I like to say I'm a history fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as far as I know, and I may be wrong, but as far as I know, the front, such that it was, was in France and Belgium and mainland Europe. It was not in England. So, And World War One was also before air power had gotten to the point that it was in World War Two, where we were able to do massive strategic bombings like the Blitz and later in the war. So... What are these explosions? Where are they coming from? Is Jerry flying over in biplanes and hucking grenades out by hand? I mean, like, I mean, maybe they're maybe they're just hearing them from far away. I mean, I'm but sure. but they're getting enough explosions that they're blowing the fucking windows out of yeah. the place. Now, I mean, they maybe they could hear the the din of the guns from so far away in Europe, especially if there was a big artillery barrage going on. But they wouldn't mm-hmm. hear it like that. It would be like thunder in the distance. Well, history be damned for a moment. Yeah, I mean, it's a cool scene. It's a scene that I think is so emotionally powerful. Yes. Uh, he Chipping is sitting in this classroom, and yes. this is after he's retired. And they ask him to come back because yes. so many of the headmasters have been sent off uh, to war. Yes. And you know, there's some of the children, the older children, have been sent off, and they're asking, you know, can you cover for a little mm-hmm. bit? And he says, "I will. Yes, I will." Of course. And so he's he's lecturing um, while the bombing is going on outside. The kids are very scared. They obviously they keep kind of looking over to the windows, like si- glancing side to side. And he even starts making like a few little jokes, mm. like he mm. can, like kind of like you know like oh it's not as bad as all that outside yeah. or something like that. And it's kind of it's kind of working on them. And it's just this great moment of like well, he's gotten so good at connecting with these kids that mm. he's able to like distract them from the to keep real, them calm in a war zone from the real world <laughs> yeah. horrors. Yeah, exactly. And folks, please, if you know why, like, like, if you know the logic behind this scene, please, for the love of God, let me know. I need to know. And he's also reading from Julius Caesar. Yes. Which is a really interesting choice. <laughs> Who also fought some Germans back in the day, and there's a little joke about that. Jason, there's one other big thing that I really want to talk about, and it's not especially related to this film, but okay. at the beginning of the movie, there is a tribute to Irving G. Thalberg. Irving J. Thalberg? I think it's Irving G. Thalberg. Okay. But uh, whatever. Whatever. Irving Thalberg. Irving Thalberg. Um, which, I mean, 
people listening may be like, that name sounds somewhat familiar. And that's because the Academy Awards, ever since 1938, have had the Irving Thalberg Memorial Award. That goes to, you know, someone every year, usually like a pioneer in the film industry. Mm -hmm. Um, This movie is so old that Irving Thalberg had only died like three years before this. So there's a tribute to him at the beginning because he helped make get so many movies made. Including this one. Yeah, and I just want to talk a little bit about Irving Thalberg because... Mm. Like people, people hear the name of the award. They've heard his name. They don't really know who he is. So I think we ought to tell the people a little bit about this sure. guy. So he was a fascinating person. He actually died at age thirty-seven, mm-hmm. uh, and he thirty-seven uh, thir- in a row. <laughs> um, he was told basically he wouldn't make it to age thirty because he had a very uh, rare congenital heart disease as a very young man. Mm-hmm. Now, um, he was one of the co-creators of MGM, so that's one big thing there. And I mean, his death was such a, a such a thing that rocked the industry. Like it was, mm. it was a monumental impact on everyone. Even Teddy Roosevelt had a quote about it, and he said, "The world of art is poorer with his passing. Mm. His high ideals, insight, and imagination went into the produ- production of masterpieces." Yeah. Um, Irving got through high school. And he, uh, but he, he knew his heart couldn't take the stress of college, late nights, you know, cram sessions, studying for exams. Mm-hmm. So he just worked at odd end jobs. He managed to get into Universal Studios doing like little work here and there. He had been there two months and was 20 years old. He became a studio manager. Wow. Because he basically suggested it. Louis B. Mayer came up to him, was very impressed with his work ethic. I'm like, what, what do you have any suggestions? And he's like, yeah, you need a studio manager. You need a boss. You need someone in charge of this. You need someone in charge of this. You need to have, start micromanaging a little bit. You need different little positions because otherwise the studio is not going to run as efficiently. And he said, okay, you're the studio manager. <laughs> basically put him in charge. Um and uh, notably, the, one of the big things about Irving Thalberg, and there was even a movie made about this, is, uh, have you ever heard of the director, uh, Eric von Stroheim? The name does sound familiar. A German fellow, perhaps? Yes, German fellow. Uh, very bombastic, very uh, blowhard type guy. Um, very set in his ways. Mm-hmm. And he was a guy that you did not talk back to. Like, you did not confront him. Studio chiefs backed away from him. Producers backed away from him. A surly him. German, you say? <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> there are Germans listening. Oh. You're guten not, Tag. You're, 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 or guten Abend. Verhagangen heißt bewahrte Gung. Right. So, so nobody confronted this guy. Irving Thalberg took him into his office because he was directing a film that had gone way over budget, way over time, kind of coppola it up, yeah. you know what I mean? So he calls him into his office, and Thalberg just calmly says to him, listen, this is a situation. You've gone way over. Uh, we need you to – you're done. We need you to be done. And Eric von Stroheim got so angry, Irving Thalberg never raising his voice, <laughs> never raising his voice Almost entirely through his whole career, by the way. Like, always a calm, young guy, very suave, very charming. Um, was never was never one of those icky people from the 30s that people said, like, oh, he did some weird, like, sex stuff. Like, he was never one of those people. And uh, Erfan Stroheim basically said to him, like, if you weren't my boss, I would smash you in the face right now. <laughs> and Irving Thalberg is like, why is that stopping you? Yeah. And he literally walked out of the office. <laughs> So I, I also enjoy when a Jewish guy, well, I have to assume Thalberg was Jewish. Yes. Uh, I really enjoy when a Jewish guy puts a German dude in his place. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Payback. Yeah. So not well, pre-back really, but yeah. that's a different thing. He knew what was coming. He did. He was um, very prescient. But not even that, but like also like 
Not only did he do that, but he got he eventually fired Eric von Stroheim, which was a huge thing at the time. I mean, now you hear about directors sometimes getting mm. taken off projects. Back then, that did not happen. Yeah. So, I mean, there are people that there were there were other producers that were like, "This guy is a fucking genius. This guy's not only is he a genius, but he's opening the doors. He's giving. He's allowing us to have a little bit more power." Mm. Um, he's so, not taking shit from von Stroheim. Yeah, he's not taking shit from you know dictator directors. Yeah. Uh, so. And I, I, I honestly, I searched. I could not find a negative word about him. Mm. Groucho Marx yeah. is someone. Okay, now Groucho Marx, of course, comedy legend. Yeah. Um, someone who probably would not take notes mm. uh, from someone else. Irving Thalberg, one of the only people in the world that would give him notes on his comedy. Yeah. Groucho would take it. No, I, I saw him on Cavett, and he talked about him so glowingly and so lovingly that yeah. he just he thought this he thought the world of this man and and really appreciated his uh, his intellect and and his ability to yeah give notes like like you say who the fuck in the world is going to give notes to Groucho Marx on comedy but if this guy could do it and Groucho was happy to have them I mean he must have been something special about him yeah I mean like he he came he innovated the idea of like story conferences he innovated the idea of retaking scenes wow like going back. After the finished product and doing a scene again, it's like, it's hey, just, this sucks. Can we work. maybe try it again? Yeah, what? And, and this <laughs> <You> is insane. <laughs> the big, the biggest thing I think he innovated was the idea of a sneak preview, yeah. and he would also do a lot of test audience screening, which was a, you know, that's a big thing now. Very ahead of his time. Huge thing now, yeah. for um, good or for ill. I mean, yeah, sometimes it doesn't always work out, but it, sometimes it can warn you if something's coming yeah. that you're probably not going to want to see. Um, he introduced a lot of uh, major stars, Louise Rayner, Greta Garbo, Joan Crawford, Clark Gable, John and Lionel Barrymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the only thing I did write down that he kind of, he kind of uh, was a little dated that he thought, uh, he did think talkies were going to be a fad. Yeah. And he did think that color would never replace black and white. Well, you know, we can't all see the future. We all can't, you know... Embrace um, the embrace what's happening, and then the nuttiest thing here is that during the times he produced hundreds of films, he never once gave himself an on-screen credit. Hmm. Not once. Weird. Yeah, never. I guess as long as he got paid, wouldn't matter, right? Yeah, he didn't care. He yeah. was he was there to help the films get made. Hey, hey MGM is going to be on the screen. If anyone knows he works for them, great. If not, whatever. He didn't care. Uh, and you know this man's legacy was so extensive that he, when he dies in 1936, I mean in 19, uh, 1938 at the 10th Oscars, they already have the Irving Thalberg Memorial Award, mm-hmm. and it's been going for 81 years. Wow! So I just want to—I mean, it doesn't have a lot to do with Goodbye, Mr. Chips, but I think his legacy. No, it's important of, that people know who this guy was. Kind of important in the whole scheme of things. Yeah, absolutely. So look him up, check him out. Bunch of comedy shows. Absolutely. But uh, if we want to turn back to this for a sec, I just want to talk briefly a little bit about... This was based on a book. Mm-hmm. You asked me to look up a little information on this book. Written so, by Irving Thalberg. <laughs> written by a, a James Hilton, I believe his name is. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, this this was a book that was originally published in a magazine, I think called Evangelical Weekly or something. Or it was an evangelical paper, Boston Week. I don't oh, know. Okay. I don't remember the specifics. But anyways, it was published you know, in, in like serialized form, eventually collected into a novella. And uh, it's pretty much the same story. Uh, you said few, the Germany thing's different. Uh, the few minor differences. Catherine is met in northern England rather yeah. than Germany. That's where he goes for his vacation. The Lake District, I think they said, whatever that is. Um, in the in the book, it's mentioned his credentials are not great. Like as a teacher, like he's just kind of being hired because they need someone. And also that he doesn't see any real value in teaching Latin or Greek because he 
figures, you know, they're dead languages. There is a little bit in the movie where he doesn't like the new pronunciation. Well, that's of Latin. that. That to me is the difference because that is in the book as well. It's yeah. like the, the irony in the book is that he doesn't think they're worth teaching, but when he does teach them, he eventually kind of gets set in his ways and he wants to teach them his oh, way. Oh, I like that a little better. Uh, but in the movie, yeah, in the movie, he clearly appreciates these uh, as a noble pursuit for students mm-hmm. to learn. But it's similarly he teaches it in the old ways he, where he says Cicero instead of Cicero. Who the fuck says Cicero? Well, you know what? It's funny because I'm um, listening to Dan Carlin's various history podcasts. There are a lot of those words that he will say with a hard K. So something like Macedonia, the country of Macedonia, mm-hmm. you would say Macedonia instead. Sounds like a cookie. It does. It'd be delicious. Macedonium. <laughs> Macedonium cookie. Mm-mm. Macedonium cookie. Uh, there's some politics that were admitted omitted from the book. There oh, could this have to do, could this do with the Nazi thing? Well, no, not with the Nazi stuff, actually. There was some socialist stuff, uh, kind of some pr- propagation of socialist viewpoints that was omitted. And also, the general strike of 1926, which was a big deal in England, and we've mentioned before, I think, um, that also was was mentioned in the book and was a part of it, but was not mentioned at all in the movie. It was not mm-hmm. even touched. Mm-hmm. Um, the Like I said, the German teacher in the book is mentioned, but he's only really mentioned in relation to the war. Um and yeah, I said in the book and the movie, his career runs from the founding of Imperial Germany until right before the Nazi regime. So that's a, an interesting period to live in for sure. That is one of the most densely packed periods of history, I would say. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's Forrest Gump. Yeah, it's Forrest Gump. It's Forrest Gump if he just stayed in a school rather than walking places. Isn't that what he did? I haven't seen it in a while. I like to teach science. Why don't we listen to another clip here? This is um, this is a, a, a little behind the scenes. I had a little bit of uh, audio uh, technical difficulties, but I did pull a few clips. This is a, uh, a clip of him giving his farewell speech as he retires from ah, teaching. So, folks, hashtag goodbye, Mr. Chips. Boys, it broke for you. I'm afraid Wainwright has been guilty of exaggeration in speaking of my services to Brookfield. But then, of course, he does come of an exaggerating family. <laughs> I remember I once had to punish his father for it. <laughs> I gave him one mark for Latin translation, and he exaggerated it into a seven. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a good many changes at Brookfield. I remember so much. I sometimes think I ought to write a book. (laughs) What should I call it? Memories of Rod and Lines? (laughs) I I, I may write it one day. I may forget some things, but I never forget your faces. If you come and see me in the years to come, as I hope you will, you may see me hesitate. And you'll say to yourself, oh, the old boy doesn't remember me. But I do remember you, as you are now. That's the point. In my mind, you remain boys, just as you are this evening. I just think that's a lovely speech. It is. It and is. It's, and it's, it's such a teacher thing. Like, you know... I think, I think we all had that moment where we see a, a teacher from our past, and they kind of take a second, they hesitate, and they're like... I remember you. Oh, yeah. But no. they always remember you as they knew you. Yeah, yeah. I know. And, and I, I, that happens to me occasionally. I'll see my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. George. Uh, and, and Mrs. George is just this tiny little fiery beast. Uh, beast is a bad word. But this <laughs> tiny little fiery woman. And, uh, and you know, of course. Hellish she, bitch. She was taller than me as a child. But now she's so small. And it's just so funny to see her. She's always like, oh, my God, Jason. And she gives me a big hug. And 
I remember when you were this high and you used to write newspapers in my class, which I did. We had a relationship. Mm, it was fourth grade, Brendan. Let's Jason? not go down that road. Jason? She was need, a lovely woman and need, completely appropriate. You need to tell me about what happened. It was all above board. <laughs> it was a lovely time. She taught me how to handwrite. <laughs> handwrite. That's right. Is she listening right now? Uh, I hope so. Hi, Mrs. George. You were the best. Ignore Brendan. He's a monster. That's right. He's a monster. And apparently ugly as fuck. Uh, one moment I wanted to point out before I forget, because it made me laugh the hardest in the whole movie, and I'm sure you also probably laughed the hardest at this moment, was when uh, uh, shortly after it was indicated that maybe he should retire, um, the word starts to get around the school, and the boys learn out about it, and they're they're going back and forth, being like, that it can't happen. And this one little boy walks out wearing glasses. He's just like, if they say another thing to Mr. Chips, well, I'll kill him. <laughs> and I just burst out laughing. It was just so earnest and angry, and I loved it. Yeah, and that, and that, and that also is a way to show how much he's connected to them. Yeah, no, that they're point. that loyal that he's willing to murder for that teacher. <laughs> Um, but like in the last third of the, the last quarter of the film, I guess, I mean, yes, Catherine's death, death is very, death, very sad yeah. and it causes a lot of like somber moments, obviously when he's teaching and you know, the kids, but like the, that last quarter of the movie is rough. Yeah. Like there's the whole thing where he's announcing the deaths yeah. of, you know, the people who died and in, that's in the course, cathedral. Yeah. Yeah. And that's of course the moment we talked about where he announced Max and they yeah. say, Hey, that's a German, but <laughs> he's like announcing like, and, and then we hear that like. Collie, like Peter Collie has died. That's mm-hmm. John Mills's character. He, Collie and the other guy died too. The the guy that he fought with, uh, Town Cheese. Uh, <laughs> Town Cheese. I think that's what he called him. He, he called me Town Cheese, and then I they got into so. a fight. I yeah. think I think almost everyone. Yeah. Like that he interacts with as a young man. That's eventually the thing. That's the lost in the war. The lost generation. Those those guys that came up in the tens, you know, as boys, and then had to join the army in 1914. Like they talk about, yeah, like one of the Ferguson, that Ferguson guy. He literally got to the front, was there for two days, and then was shot. And that yeah. happened to so many young men. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's 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 a pretty it's a pretty rough uh, last little bit. Mm-hmm. But then of course we finish. Mr. Chip, Mr. Chipping is on his deathbed, and they say something along the lines of, like, you know, it's a shame. They're all kind of gathered around. They yeah. think he's kind of, you know, unconscious or whatever. They say it's a shame he never had children, and he has this little speech on yeah. his deathbed, which leads into the ending kind of rousing music moment. So yeah. I'll just play a little bit of this.
Jason has a, has a very fun fact about that scene. So we we get this little ending here with, uh, with you know, he's on his deathbed. He mm-hmm. passes away. Um, we get this, like, sort of uh, ghostly vision of the roll call over the years. And then, of course, that last shot of the, of the youngest Peter Colley mm-hmm. saying, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. J- Jason, what were you telling me while we were listening to that about you? Oh, I was just Peter saying that, that Peter Colley, I believe he's still alive. Yeah. He's probably in his 80s now. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, maybe even in his 90s. I'd have to look him up. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I was interested to learn he was uh, he was a gay man, mm-hmm. and uh, he met a fella in uh, in I think the fifties, and they were together until his death in two thousand ten. Cool. Um, so yeah, interesting fact, and the fact that dude's still alive—that's impressive to me because probably not many people from this movie that are still alive. No, I think you might have gotten the only one. Yeah, <laughs> I think Robert Donna died in like the fifties. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> so. absolutely. Um, the lifespan back then was thirty-eight. <laughs> no, I mean everybody smoked. Yeah, so hard. <laughs> so much. Um, okay, well, is there any uh, anything else you want to kind of... Did you notice how much this movie looked like Harry Potter? Like in terms of the set design of the interiors? I, 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 was, I, I looked it up and I don't believe that they, there was any cross-filming or anything like that. In fact, okay. I think the interiors were sets. The out, outdoors was filmed at a school called Repton. Well, I mean, you've got, I mean, there could have been some inspiration there. But definitely, I mean, obviously, since Harry Potter is obviously so heavily inspired by the British public school system, the... Uh, by public school, of course, I mean private school system. Yes. Uh, but they call it public school over there because, of course, they have to be different. Or we have to be different. I don't know. But somebody has to be fucking different. You were here first, fucking God annoying. damn it. Yeah, sure. That's right. This is our land. This is our land. Oh, wait. No, maybe not. No? Maybe not. Maybe not. Wait, let me just look at the receipt here. Yeah. Oh, no. There's no receipt. We just took it all. Oh, there's no receipt? Yeah, no. We just... oh, what is this then? That is, <laughs> that's the morning uh, uh, scarf. So we can mourn the fact that we killed so many people and then took their land. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm just gonna put this back. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. But yes, very Harry Potter. So sorry. Very Harry Potter. Very Harry Potter. Uh, so do you, do you specific, think- specifically the Great Hall that they all sit in, like like where they do the speeches and everything, like that looks very much like the Great Hall in Harry Potter. So I think it's maybe that's generic design from schools in England for that sort of thing. Maybe, but I mean, it could have been a, it could have been inspired. Yeah, it could have inspired Harry Potter. I'd like to think that the production designer of Harry Potter, Harry Potter, watched Harry, this movie. Harry Potter, Harry Potter watched this movie, watched the Bells of Saint Trinians, and decided that those were the two movies he was going to need to watch to make Harry Potter. And then was very disappointed when he found out that Alistair Sim had passed away. Yeah, so he would have made a great several decades ago. Hello, yes, I'm. Dumb Dumbledore. <laughs> yeah, you you're know a, what? You're a wizard, Harry. Why is Alistair Sim suddenly playing uh, that guy? Why is he playing Alec Guinness? <laughs> now that's a wizard I've not seen in a long time. <laughs> and I think it might go a little bit something like, <laughs> like this. this. Um, okay, well, do you want to get into a little bit of the uh, financials yeah, yes. and stuff? Okay, so this movie was actually a fairly big budget movie at the time, Jason. This was a million fifty-one thousand dollars budget. But at the box office, it clears three million two hundred and fifty-two thousand dollars. That's a profitable movie. That's nineteen thirty-nine money. It's a two hundred percent profit. Yeah. Um, no, that's three hundred percent profit. Is it? Yeah, it is. Is that how that works? Because the profit is is beyond what you spent it. So if you if you spent a million and you made two million, you're two million profit. Like two hundred percent profit. I don't know. Everything's gonna be fun. math. Math is hard. I don't have a degree in it, so. Well, uh, this movie. Goes to the Oscars. You goddamn right it does. It only wins one Oscar though, but a big one. But a big one. The other one, the ones that is nominated for Jason, it is nominated for best editing, which I think is a good award. Mm-hmm. I think is a, uh, deserved. It goes to uh, Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, best sound recording goes to, of course, When Tomorrow Comes. Yeah, of course. Uh, best adapted screenplay 
because it was obviously adapted from the book. Yeah. Uh, the other nominees that it does not win, but the other nominees that year are Ninochka, Wuthering Heights, okay. uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, oh. and the winner that year, Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Uh, it is nominated for Best Actress for Greer Garson, which I think is well-deserved. Which probably lost to Vivian Lee for Gone with the Wind. Well, hold on, Jason. The <laughs> other nominees include Greta Garbo for Ninochka, Irene Dunn for Love Affair, Betty Davis for Dark Victory, and the winner that year, Vivian Lee for Gone with the Wind. <laughs> The, the uh, fact that this movie won any Academy Awards in the year that Gone with the Wind was at the uh, Academy Awards is impressive. It is nominated for Best Direction, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Uh, Sam Wood. The other nominees include Frank Capra for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, John Ford for Stagecoach, William Wyler for Wuthering Heights, and the winner, Victor Fleming for, let's Gone. say it together, Gone, Gone with the, the Wind. Wind. It is also nominated for Outstanding Production, a.k.a. the Best Picture Award of the time. The other nominees include Love Affair, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Nanochka of Mice and Men, Stagecoach, Wizard of Oz, which is, yeah, there you go, mm-hmm. Wuthering Heights, and the winner, Gone, Gone with the Wind. Wind. Um, it does win, though, one award. Best Actor, Robert Donnett. Damn straight. The other nominees that year were Lawrence Olivier for Wuthering Heights, Jimmy Stewart for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, oh. Mickey Rooney for Babes in Arms, and of course, Clark Gable for Gone, Gone with, with the, the Wind. Wind. So Gone with the Wind sweeps except for that. Which I think that's a huge upset. That is a big upset. Like, yeah, I mean, that movie and his role is so iconic. You know, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Is I mean, one of the most iconic roles and lines in film history. Only watched that movie for the first time like recently. I still haven't seen it. It's yeah. a it's a it's a it's a beast of a movie to watch. It is a beast of a movie, but it goes down relatively smooth. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, Robert Donnett, huge upset. Um, I mean, great. He's fantastic yeah, in this he movie. He he did he did vocally um, when interviewed about it. He did complain a little bit about the how the makeup th- he thought made him look terrible. Yeah, like he thought he, he thought no. he looked like a like a drowned dog basically. <laughs> but he was supposed to look that way. Like like he was not like like I, I got the feeling that Mr. Chipping was a bit disheveled. Like yeah. just, and of course we see with the robe. Like he's wearing the old torn robe that's become a tradition. Exactly. He's sticking to tradition. Yeah, very traditional guy. Um, at the BAFTAs, they did not exist yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about the critics a little bit. So in, in uh, the New York Times, it praised the film, particularly the adaptation and the performances of Donna and Garson. Uh, 1939 Variety staff summed up the film as a charming, quaintly sophisticated account of the life of a school teacher highlighted by a, by a remarkably fine performance by Robert Donnett. The character he etches creates a bloodstream for the picture that keeps it intensely alive. Uh, the National Board of Review, was it was on their 10 best list for 1939, uh, received the Best Picture distinction in The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, the film was re-released in the United Kingdom in 1944 and in 1954 in theaters, so it was very popular. In 1999, this is our best stat, Jason, Goodbye Mr. Chips was voted the 72nd greatest British film ever of all time, oh and the God. British film is two top 100 British films. Ah, in 2003... The American Film Institute ranked Mr. Chipping the 41st greatest film hero of all time. Wow. And I don't know why this is on here, but I just love it. On TCM.com, hmm. Leonard Malton gives the film 3.5 stars out of 4. Well, thanks, Leonard. <laughs> Leonard Malton's fantastic. I love that guy. Goodbye, Mr. Chips. No, we never knew you at all. You had the grace to hold yourself. A people died in the war. You taught us all some Latin, <laughs> and you argued how to pronounce certain words in Latin, like Cicero, yes, and Monte Macedonia. There you go. So same. 
I was going to say Montenegro, but I was like, that's not right. That's near Serbia. Serbia's? We ain't here to talk about him. Get back to the podcast. And nobody knows what I'm talking about. Nope, that's just for us. Yep. Um, so yeah, ultimately, what do you think of this movie, Brennan? Oh, can I ask me? Okay. Yeah, like I'm going to ask you today. Okay. Um, uh, hmm. Okay. I like it. Yeah. I I thought it was pleasant. Yes. I thought it was very well acted. Mm-hmm. I thought the relationships between the characters were very well, um, especially, you know, especially him and Catherine. I thought that was great. Um. I kind of think it sits pretty comfortably where it is. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's particularly a standout, and I don't mean this in a in the wrong way. I think it's a better film than some of the ones we kind of went. Mm. Yeah. Like it's better than that. Yeah. I think it's a solid film. Yes. Um, but yeah, seventy two seems right ish. I can't disagree with you on anything you said. This is a perfectly pleasant film. As, as perfectly pleasant as the, yeah. That's this the, this is exactly the sort of movie that you could sit down with your grandmother and watch on a Sunday afternoon, and you'd both enjoy very much. And uh, she'd probably have some stuff to talk about because maybe she saw it as a child, or maybe her mother saw it and liked it, uh, uh, or father perhaps, or yep. maybe even an uncle or a cousin, a uh, friend that lives down the road, um, perhaps a colleague from work. I'll say that the historical stuff, if it didn't have the historical stuff to lend it that context, I think it would be a lesser film. Yeah. Um, that definitely helps it a lot. Yeah. And the fact that they kind of tie that into everything that's going on and they tie it into his mm. emotional arc, like I think that's really... It's a really well done aspect of the movie. I like it because it's sort of a window into how school was at that era of yeah. what it was like to be in that. And then, and then I'm sure for people in Britain that have gone to these schools, it's probably interesting to compare like how little uh, stuff has changed since then. And they kind of go against the stereotypes too, because the headmasters are never really presented as being these these dictator yeah. type guys. No, like, no, nobody seems to be terrible. In they this all movie. have like a really good relationship with the children. Even the guy, you know, the guy doing the assemblies, making jokes. The yeah. kids are laughing. The, the closest we have to a villain is like is the headmaster who like encourages him to retire because of his ratty robe, but then he comes around on him and is sad he's leaving five years later at his retirement. Oh right, we didn't even mention that yeah. part. But he almost gets uh, he almost gets convinced to re- retire because he doesn't want to uh, doesn't do the new pronunciations of Latin words, yeah. and that also leads to one of my favorite moments where he says, "Okay, I'm not going to retire," and then he says, "I'll do the I'll even do the new pronunciations after five years of this. I'm probably going to want to retire anyway." Yeah, and then five years later, <laughs> he does. <laughs> yeah, uh, just from the stress of having to teach this. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, I think I think. Perfectly pleasant is the best way to describe this. It yeah. is a it is a good film. Yeah, it's a solid film. I see. I, I think it is elevated by uh, by Robert Donat's performance. Yeah, and Greg Garson. And Greg, yeah, everybody's her, great. Her, but like, she, limited time on screen, she kind of electrifies a little bit. Yeah, and, I mean that dance scene. Yes, that we, was, we didn't even talk about that, but that dance scene is fantastic. And um, and again, that's that musical cue that comes mm-hmm. up every time their yeah. love is mentioned. Hmm. And it's also apparently about Nazis. Yeah, so yeah sure. Well, I mean Germany, not necessarily Nazis, every but 19, 1939, You know, they were right at the door. Yeah, at my door. Yeah. Oh shit! They were. I wasn't even alive. Nope. It's, you're lucky. <laughs> lucky you missed them. I'm lucky I wasn't born yet. That's right. Well, Jason, um, we've come to the end of this episode, and oh. No, no, I just I was waiting. Okay, okay. Throwing over to you. We we've come to the end of this episode, uh, and normally at this time we would roll the dice to find out what we are doing next week. However, next week's a little bit different because we have covered now forty movies. We yes, are, we are one third of the way through this list. Damn straight. We are our second batch of twenty movies, and that means that we need to rank the ones that we watched from. 21 to 40. Damn so straight. we are going to do that in our next week's episode. We are going to rank them. We are going to give out some awards. 
to uh, I feel like this time, Jason, just to get a little housekeeping here. Mm-hmm. I think this time we're each going to give our awards, so we're not yeah. going to agree on this consensus. Okay. We're going to we're going to determine our own little right. yeah. Sounds fun. Be fun, and then we'll obviously do our eat our uh, our lists. Yes, and uh, see where we rank them. Bum, bum, bum. Come on, women in love, number one. Number one, naked wrestling match, best scene, best wrestling match in a British movie. That's a that's a tight, uh, <laughs> very tight category. Yeah, but. Tight category. Um, so until then, I guess I will just say that you can find us on Facebook. Uh, I just had an accent for a second. Find us on Facebook. 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 You can search for Four Screen. And Contrary. You can also find us on Twitter at BFI underscore pod. You can also find Jason on Twitter. At Jason D. McLeod. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. And on that Twitter account, he is a teacher. You can, yeah, hear me bitching about work. I will teach you about how to use a door at a gas station after I lock the door at 8 o'clock. Inspirational tweets plenty. That's right. So, Jason, all I have to say right now to you say it, Brendan, is... Say it. Give it to me, Brendan. God save the queen. Ooh, and God save the screen. And for screen and country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. You're late for class. I'm late for lots of stuff, buddy. Oh, boy. Sit down, sir. Yes, yes, master. Fall is here. Hear the yell. Back to school. Ring the bell. Brand new shoes, walking blues, climb the fence, books and pens. I can tell that we are gonna be friends. I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Walk with me, Susie Lee, through the park and by the tree. We will rest upon the ground and look at all the books we found. Safely walk to school without a sound. Safely walk to school without a sound. Hey Siri, who's your daddy? Okay, no, we're right. I was right. I know this must mean something. Everybody keeps saying this. That's going to go in the bloops. <laughs> was A Quiet Place inspired by signs it comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is a Hurricane Heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast, Piecing It Together. Every week we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it. Whether it's the story, the character development, tone, or even use of music. Every movie was influenced by something that came before it, and we want to figure out what. Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com. You can also follow us on social media at piecingpod. Piecing It Together is a part of the All Points West Podcast Network. If you've ever found yourself scrolling through the recommended movies on streaming services and wondering if any of those are worth your time, I'm here to help. Hi, I'm Erica, host of Customers Also Watched, a podcast about movies on Amazon Prime. I started with one movie from my own watch list, and from there, each episode, I grab a friend or two, and we discuss a movie from the customer's also watch list of the previous episode's movie. Follow on Twitter at CAW Podcast, and Facebook or Instagram under Customers Also Watched. Available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and Podbean. See you down the rabbit hole.